Your body is unique. So why would you settle for a weight loss plan that's one size fits all? Noom is the weight management program that takes into account your biology to build a custom plan just for you. Stay focused on what's important to you with Noom's psychology and biology-based approach. Sign up for your trial today at Noom.com and check out Noom's first ever cookbook, The Noom Kitchen, for 100 healthy and delicious recipes to promote better living. Available to buy now wherever books are sold. Support for this show comes from Slack. You're a growing business and you can't afford to slow down. If anything, you could probably use a few more hours in the day. That's why the most successful growing businesses are working together in Slack. Slack is where work happens, with all your people, data, and information in one AI-powered place. Start a call instantly in huddles and ditch cumbersome calendar invites. Or build an automation with Workflow Builder to take routine tasks off your plate. No coding required. Grow your business in Slack. Visit slack.com to get started. If you are able to be radicalized into the alt-right where you're saying terrible things and running over people, there's nothing that I can say in empathy to prevent that. Hello and welcome to Ezra Klein Show on the Box Media Podcast Network. My guest today is Ellen Powell. I've been thinking about Ellen Powell a lot lately. In 2015, she was at the center of two controversies that I've come to think of as the canaries in the coal mine for our current era. One was her lawsuit against the huge, huge, huge venture capital firm Kleiner Perkins, which is massive. Um, The other was she was interim CEO of Reddit. And while she was interim CEO of Reddit, she banned a couple very controversial, very ugly subreddits, one about upskirts, another about um, fat shaming. She you know, ran a fight against revenge porn on the platform, and she was pushed out. In a way, she lost both of those battles. She lost her lawsuit against Kleiner Perkins. She was pushed out at Reddit. But she went on to write a book, Reset Her Fight for Inclusion and Lasting Change. She co-founded Project Include, which is working on diversity in Silicon Valley. She's a tech investor now and a diversity and inclusion activist at the Kapoor Center for Social Impact. And she just saw a lot of this coming. I, I think that if her fights had happened this year, they would have had a very different outcome. But in part because they didn't, in part because she was here right when these issues were getting big enough that people would pay attention, but not big enough that people could win them. I think she's got a perspective on what is going on now in our country, now in our technology sector, that is worth listening to. A perspective on how gender discrimination works in the workplace, a perspective on why these platforms, Facebook and Reddit and Twitter and so many others are now having to fight these wars about what can and cannot be said on them, whether or not they are in fact open and neutral platforms. A perspective on this fight that has emerged as a full-blown war in our culture over what is free speech, over what is politically correct, over what does it mean to let people speak in a way that keeps others from speaking? What responsibilities do the heads of big corporations have to allow any speech to flourish, even at the cost of there being a commons that people can actually participate in? There's a lot here that she was early to that I think is worth reconsidering now. So without further ado, here is Ellen Powell. 
Ellen Powell, welcome to the podcast. Thank you for having me. So I think of the year you had, uh, what, what year was it? It was 2015? 2015. Between the the lawsuit with Kleiner Perkins and your experience at Reddit as having been this incredible canary in the coal mine for then what happened in 2016 and 2017, what we're living through now. So I wanted to start here. How do you think your 2015 would have been different if it happened in 2018? It's a good question because it's complicated, right? Like, would we be where we are now if I hadn't sued and gone through public trial and made the changes that I'd made at Reddit? No. So, but how far would we have gotten? So I don't know. I think it would have been a lot easier if we were where we are today. Like, I think people's views are now changed. When I sued in 2012, people were like, this can't be true. The New York Times actually ran an article with a quote um, by some author that said, well, when I was writing my book about the boys of Silicon Valley, I didn't have anybody say any of these things. So I'm super skeptical that any of it could possibly have happened because why hasn't anybody talked about it? And then you see what, you know, people attacking me and really like calling me a bad performer and really saying terrible things about me. Like, this is why people don't talk about it, because you end up being really retaliated against. But this is a way in which uh, I think what's happened is so remarkable. I mean, you think a lot about culture. In your book, you write a lot about culture. But before we started here, we were talking a bit about culture. And I think sometimes we have trouble separating the specific things we're tracking from the culture in which they take place. And the culture in which a lot of this takes place seems to me to have become very different. So let's let's put the lawsuit to the side for a minute and and, and talk about the, the speech side of this. When you were at Reddit, you began closing down some of the most – toxic of the forums. You closed down revenge porn and child porn forums. And that was controversial then. And, and I feel that now if you did that, it would be a lot less controversial, that there is a a recognition now that these things that proclaim themselves neutral platforms were never truly neutral, but also that in any kind of polity, in any kind of space, decisions are being made and have to be made. And, and the question is how you make them. Do you think that the ideology around openness and speech and platforms in Silicon Valley has changed in the past three years? I think it's changed dramatically. I think early on, people didn't really think about community management, and it became very easy to just say, we're going to have this open platform, and it's going to be a free-for-all, let people talk, and we're going to you know, make sure that free speech reigns, and people are able to express themselves. We see great things happening with Arab Spring. We see great things happening with people getting a voice and having an audience, and like Anybody can get to the front page of Reddit. And now we've seen, actually, it is still very majority focused. You still have people getting pushed off these platforms. There's still a complete power imbalance. And that's actually not a good thing. Talk to me a bit about what the term free speech means in the technology sector, because I hear it a lot. And when I, I come from the political world, and when I hear free speech, I think of constitutionally protected free speech, which is not what people are talking about because nobody's saying we're going to throw you in jail for saying that. That is not what Facebook can do to you. It's not what Reddit can do to you. But there is a term out here, free speech, that, that people are very committed to, and I think understandably so. It's an important idea, and it means something. But I have found it slippery to define exactly what it means. So how would you define it, or what do you think are the different definitions out here that are used for it? So I grew up in kind of journalism. I was a reporter in high school and in college. And so for me, free speech means like the lack of the right of the government to control speech and to limit what you can say. So that was my grounding. And then when I came out here, it's been used much more 
almost as a marketing tool. Like we're going to use free speech to promote and market our platform as something that's really good for the world. That's some, as something that's adding value because we're allowing people to speak their minds. We're allowing them to reach different audiences. We're creating this distribution that wasn't possible before. And it's oriented around this value of free speech that, you know, most people believe in, like the government shouldn't be controlling what we say. But now it became really kind of sloppy and kind of warped because people started saying, all right, now these platforms are all about free speech. So if they start removing information, it's a violation of my free speech, which I have this very strong belief is this constitutional right. So that constitutional right you mentioned earlier is now got bled into kind of this corporate policy and it's gotten very sloppy. And it's also been interesting because platforms have taken down information forever. They've taken down spam. They've taken down all sorts of content. But it's just when it gets to people pushing the boundaries, sometimes just to push the boundaries or where they feel like they should be able to be racist or misogynistic or, you know, whatever ist you want. And they feel like I deserve this platform because I am exercising my constitutional right to free speech. One of the things that I hear to try to take the other side of the argument um, is that take the folks who do not want to say any of that and in fact are repulsed by that rhetoric, but in many cases have run or have been engineers behind some of these platforms. There seems to me to have been for a long time a belief that is now under challenge, which is that by allowing very toxic forms of speech to flourish, that that will allow more wonderful forms of speech to flourish, more great ideas to come into being, more innovation to happen, that by opening up you know, the, the platforms with you know, the, the dangers that comes with and you know, with the collateral damage that brings – that the final outcome of that would be good. And now it seems to me that in ways people don't yet have a great language for, they're not sure. They're sure that that is true to some degree, but they're sure also that there is a degree to which it is no longer true, and nobody quite knows where to put the dial. But but there's an ideology of around what an open platform would do, that they were sure that the benefits would outweigh the costs. It now seems to me to be crumbling a little bit. Does that feel right? That feels right. We had this, these conversations. So I was at Reddit from 2013 to 2015, and we had a lot of these conversations in 2013, 2014. And then I guess it was in 2014, we had this experience where people started posting these unauthorized nude photos on Reddit. And it was a lot of like celebrities. So people would go to the Reddit platform and uh, the stance that we took was, you know, that is free speech. We're, you know, linking to content that's already out there and we're going to let it go. And what we realized was that took over the whole platform. Like we couldn't get the good content out there because people were so busy trying to find this kind of shitty content, like stolen nude photos, right? And so it doesn't work that way. It doesn't work that, you know, when you have an open platform, the good and the bad flourish equally, especially when you see how people behave on the platform. Often the people who are proposing this bad content are harassing people who are trying to get, you know, good or, or just alternative views onto the platform. So you don't actually have a conversation. You have a bunch of people screaming at each other and the other people respond and it just, there's no content there. It's a bunch of abusive, harassing language and nobody's learning anything or, or getting any ideas from it. 
Most weight loss programs focus on restriction and inflexible routine, which is why most diets fail. But Noom isn't a diet. It's a weight management program that uses psychology and biology to help you develop healthy, sustainable habits. Noom believes that weight loss starts with the brain, and their daily lessons are tailored to help users understand the science behind food cravings and eating choices. Whether you want to lose weight, increase physical activity, meet a health goal, or simply change the way you think about food, Noom can help you build healthy habits while still enjoying your favorite foods. Stay focused on what's important to you with Noom's psychology and biology-based approach. Sign up for your trial today at Noom.com and check out Noom's first ever cookbook, The Noom Kitchen, for 100 healthy and delicious recipes to promote better living. Available to buy now wherever books are sold. Support for this podcast comes from Constant Contact. If you're a business owner, you already know that it's really, really hard to cut through the noise of everyday life. If you want to connect with your customers, you need to break through the noise. You need Constant Contact. Constant Contact is a marketing platform that makes it easy to reach new audiences, grow your customer list, and connect over email, text, social media, and more. Whether you're a marketing guru or just learning the ropes, Constant Contact offers writing assistance tools and automation features that make it simple to say the right thing at the right time. So get going and start growing your business today with a free trial at ConstantContact.com. Just go to ConstantContact.com right now. Constant Contact, helping the small stand tall. ConstantContact.com. One of the things that seems to me to happen in these spaces is that over time, as you say, you can get into these really toxic equilibria. And so, you know, you had a reasonable amount of stuff you didn't love on your platform happening. And then for one reason or another, there's a massive hack of celebrity nude photos. It explodes. But now you have all the speech actually happening. And maybe it is driving out other people or creating a very, very unwelcoming environment for for certain kinds of people, right? The right to come on to some platform and be called terrible names is like not a right most people want to enjoy. And so the place becomes hostile and you realize as somebody running one of these that, oh, my platform is, it may have free speech, but it's not actually very open for speech, right? People are getting driven off of it. They're getting harassed. But then any action you take on existing speech, it is an action, you have to do something. You have to take away something somebody had, right? A, a freedom to express themselves, a community in which they enjoyed shaming fat people or posting, you know, to, to use some of the ones that you banned, posting upskirt photos. Whereas the speech that you are trying to give space to, it doesn't exist yet on the platform. So, so there isn't a constituency fighting for it. And, and it feels to me, we see this in politics a lot, where it's very hard to take things away from people even when it's going to mean more people get the gain from it. But all these groups, they as they grow up, they have very hardcore committed users, very passionate minorities on them. Sometimes those minorities are toxic. They're creating less overall speech. But nobody is really complaining about that because it's hard to complain about something you don't have. Whereas to get that taken away, to get something you love taken away, you, you want to fight for it. So at Reddit, there were kind of a counter communities that mm-hmm. were getting kind of 
bullied off the site in many ways. They were getting harassed and they were getting— um, Like what? what? What got bullied off the site? Um, I don't know if you'd say bullied off the site, but there were different communities for people of color where, you know, they would get brigaded and people would come in and they would just make that subreddit a wasteland for a while where people couldn't post because they would get all sorts of hateful messages or people were posting original hateful messages on their subreddits and just basically ruining the experience of building a community for a certain group of people. So there there were communities that were being targeted and it would be back and forth because then they would go back, you know, that group that was being targeted would go back and try to address it by attacking the other site. So then you'd have like this back and forth and people would get banned on both sides and it would be just a mess. And the people who were trying to fend themselves, they don't have any tools. We didn't give them great tools. And so they took the tool they knew, which was go out and harass people and they would get banned. And it it was just like a bad situation all the way around. So on Reddit, there were communities that were, it wasn't like they, you know, we were trying to make space for these communities. Um, the communities were actually there and they were having a hard time having this good set of conversations because people would constantly come in and uh, give them a hard time. What what year did you move to the Bay Area? 1998. So you were here through the first bust and then through the re-rise and you've worked at Web TV and I mean, you, you were here for a lot of this. So putting aside some of the really bad actors, when you think back to that period and all that you saw and all the conversations you were in, which parts of the philosophy that motivated the technology sector do you think either have been rethought or need to be rethought? What, what, what did people, good-hearted people, have wrong? I think the biggest thing they got wrong was that um, tech was a meritocracy. And the idea that anybody could succeed because look at Steve Jobs or look at Bill Gates. Like They started these great companies and they built them out of nothing. And anybody can go and do that, this kind of Horatio Alger image actually didn't hold true for huge swaths of the population. That idea that, you know, we're living in a meritocracy has been very toxic because we've created these systems and we've created processes of recruiting where it's like, go and find all your friends. And while your friends are going to look like you and they're going to come from the same schools you do and they're going to have the same experiences. So that means they're probably very homogenous and they're not adding to the views. They're not adding to your understanding of different communities of customers. They're not adding to different ideas for building product or being more creative. And that rigidity in how people are thinking about building their companies and how people are thinking about success ended up creating the system where, you know, the same types of people in a very small group were successful. They ended up making enough money to become venture capitalists or being able to raise money from their friends and started funding people in the same way. You know, there was a while where people were looking for people who looked like Mark Zuckerberg, who dropped out of school, who, you know, who were white, young and male. And that was the pattern people were trying to match. And lo and behold, white young men were successful because they're the only people funded. So that whole thread became super toxic. And now we're trying to unwind it. But it's hard because it's, you know, you've got this power dynamic where you have one set of people who have an enormous amount of power, who have made billions of dollars as individuals who are still kind of trying to figure out whether they should have done anything different versus trying to fix it. What would it mean for tech to have actually been or to be a meritocracy? 
ideas about meritocracies always strike me as some of the least examined in our culture. Like they, they're, they're so foundational in America and we are always feeling bad that we did not live up to X actually being a meritocracy. And it, it always seems to me that we never quite are good at answering the question of like, what would it even mean for X to be a meritocracy? A meritocracy of or at what? Like, do, do you think there's a version of Silicon Valley as a meritocracy that, that is internally coherent and we just haven't lived up to it? Oh, it's that's a hard question. I, I think there is the goal of making a meritocracy, but then the way people created the ways of measuring it were not meritocratic. So if you look at... And how are you defining meritocracy here? So I think of meritocracy like as a person who's worked in a company and it's being rewarded for your contributions, right? So it's not where you went to school. It's not like all those things may contribute to what you can contribute. But, you know, just because I went to a certain school doesn't mean I deserve more money. It's, you know, if I learn certain things or if I can do certain things, then... I'm contributing and that's what I should be rewarded for. And that's what, and my ability to contribute should lead to my promotion, not because I'm friends with some other person and they feel good about me, right? So this idea of getting based on what you're contributing is how I think about meritocracy, especially in tech. Well, one of the places where I think that then that gets really complicated is, okay, like, let's say we had that, right? Let's say we did create that. So now you're within a company and people are being rewarded for the, the size of their contribution. And that company is, is within an industry and that industry rewards certain things. And it's within an economic system and the economic system rewards certain things. And it seems to me that we've had some set of problems where the claims of the technology industry, like the claims of many other industries, I, I do think tech can get singled out unfairly here, to be a meritocracy were not true. There were old boys networks and there were just like literal barriers to entry and, and on and on down the line. Then the other problem was that there are places where it was actually over-optimized to just contribute what the thing was internally valuing. And then it turned out that maybe the thing it was valuing was not a good thing to value. I mean, right now it, we seem to be in a moment where one of the interesting tech backlashes is towards the idea that so much of the big technology companies, and here I'm particularly thinking the ones that make social networks and apps and and and, and devices you spend time on, are built to maximize engagement. Yeah. And the idea that everybody's going to succeed in addicting all children to smartphones, I mean, it may be that that's uh, you know people are getting are getting rewarded on their contribution in those companies, but then we sort of turn around and look at each other and think, oh, is that actually the contribution we wanted? Were, were, were we selecting for the right thing when we were selecting for that contribution? Right. Is all engagement the same? Like, right. And I think that's part of why we are where we are, because the engagement that actually drives a lot more engagement is people fighting, people fighting on the Internet or people saying terrible things like you trigger that emotional reaction and it drives a ton of energy and a ton of, you know, and, and positive metrics. It brings a lot of people. We had so many people come for those naked pictures. Like it, it was a huge spike in our usage at Reddit. So is that engagement we want? A bunch of people coming to look at pictures, they don't say anything, they don't do anything, or they harass people who say that the picture shouldn't be there? No, it's not building a community. So what kind of engagement are you looking for? And not all engagement is of the same value. One of the things I thought was really fascinating about your book was from the outside, we think of the technology sector as somewhat inhuman, uh, the, the, the compared to other industries. It is more metric-oriented, more managed. It's built on code. 
it's built on algorithms. So much of it seems to be taking humans out of the equation. And so much of your story was about how human it, it still is, how much it's networks of people and friends and cultures. And I wanted to get you to talk a little bit about that, about the ways in which the public narrative and the sort of outsider's view of Silicon Valley misses how much here is still just groups of people with group dynamics and internal cultures dealing with one another and how much of what the rest of us end up using is in some is somehow or another emergent from cultures that are, are not chosen by a computer. They're actually made by people. Yeah, it's interesting because the computer is made by people and it's programmed by people. So even if it is theoretically chosen by the computer, it's not. It's influenced by the people's assumptions in building that software and the people's goals in building that software. And when it's just, you know, some random metric, then it may be optimized for that metric, but that might not be the right thing to do. I think um, you hit a lot in that question. So I'm trying to... Yeah, this is a problem with talking to me. (laughs) (laughs) Because my head was following and now I've got to go back to the beginning. Let me ask a simpler version of it. What do we get wrong about Silicon Valley by thinking about it as metrics and technology and code and not seeing it as collections of humans who know each other, making decisions that they validate for each other. It's interesting because I think there's a set of people who want it to be very formulaic. I don't really have to make decisions because I'm just going to throw like, you know, for a long time, Google had kind of an admissions committee type of recruiting and a lot of people followed it. So I'm not picking on Google became the standard for a lot of people. And, you know, they looked at your SAT scores, they looked at your GPA, they looked at what school you went to, and it was kind of formulaic in those factors counting for a lot. And then they went back and they did some research and they realized, like, that actually had nothing to do with whether the people were successful at work or not. So there's, like, this desire to make it very formulaic, but the reality is people get involved all the time, and often these formulas are used to continue exclusion and to keep things. They're used against people to make sure that they don't move into the inclusion area from the excluded area. They're used to It's used to exclude people, and it's not used to exclude people fairly. When we think about the platforms here, to, to, to just use one example— One of the ideas about them that was very strong for a long time was they were neutral platforms. Facebook, Reddit, Twitter, et cetera, neutral platforms. Anybody could be on them. Anybody could write text in the box and click publish, and then it was published and it was there for all the world to see. I feel like one of the arguments made by you and made by others is that in ways that the people behind these platforms didn't understand, they were not as open and not as neutral as they thought that there were things that they didn't see that were necessary for folks not like them to participate. What are examples of that to you? What what what, what did people miss by missing the, the human element here? So I will um, give credit to Ev Williams from Twitter, who has now said multiple times publicly that he thinks they had it wrong. Like they thought about free speech and open platform and missed a bunch of stuff. And I think a big part of it is like, what are the dynamics on the platform? How are people being rewarded and how are people being treated? And the biggest thing that's easiest to see now is the harassment. The fact that these platforms were mostly created by white men who were not experiencing the harassment led it to fester on the sites. And that 
ended up creating a lot of the toxicity and enabling a lot of these groups to build followings and to continue to take that harassment off site into real life. Do you have a theory of why so much harassment flourishes on these sites? I think it's the emotional reward, like on Reddit, where you can get attention and you can get karma. And the more extreme that you can be within the rules of the site without getting kicked off, the more attention you'll get and the more um, you know, reward you'll get from your social group. Do you think that there is more harassment online than offline? Do you think there's something different about the dynamics of these online spaces that, that makes people who would not be this way offline this way online? I used to think it was this anonymity, the fact that I could have a fake name or I could be doing it behind my keyboard. But it has transformed in the last year and a half where people don't care about using their name anymore. It's become so normalized that you can say these terrible things that they're not ashamed to put their name and identity behind it. And that's a change. I would have said two years ago, it's the fact that it's anonymous, people feel comfortable doing things behind a keyboard. But now I feel like they've been supported so much that they don't need to have that anonymity. And I think it's now it's like natural discourse. And that's the way people behave on the internet. It's become the pattern of behavior that is known and that people are used to and that people realize is being rewarded. Let me try to take the other side of this for a minute. There are a lot of folks online, from what I can tell, who the way they see what is playing out now is that the norms of what you can and can't say are changing very fast. Um, I'll use as one example the the use of non-traditional pronouns for people who have non-traditional gender identities. And that all of a sudden, if you misgender someone, you're a villain. Whereas 10 years ago, people barely talked about this. And these folks say maybe don't agree. And now they're being told they're harassers. And that they see this discussion about harassment as just a way to sort of weaponize an issue against them so that they have to buy into a social change that they're not comfortable with and that this isn't really an on-level discussion about harassment, that in fact they're the ones who are getting the full weight of society's um, opprobrium taken against them when all they're doing is writing comments online or trying to have a space where they, you know, whatever, talk about video games and like to talk about how hot women are in video games. And that there's this whole discussion that has arisen where the way they talk is being made abnormal. And then when they try to fight back, they're called harassers. Do you have um, any sympathy for that viewpoint? I think it's a very favorable spin on a situation. I've not seen anybody attacked for misgendering somebody or using the wrong pronouns in isolation, right? It's usually accompanied by other language and by a kind of negativity around non-binary genders, right? So yes, it's often intentional and intended to provoke and to upset and to anger people. So it's I've misgendered or used the wrong pronouns and I've not been attacked, right? You, you say, I'm sorry, I'm here, let me use your, your pronoun correctly mm-hmm. and um, make an effort. And people are generally understanding that we're in this time of transition and it's not going to be automatic and not everybody knows everybody's pronouns and, you know, and we move forward. And I, I feel like that is becoming more and more part of people opening up and trying to be accommodating. And as we spoke earlier, like people are 
trying to speak up and trying to be supportive and trying to be allies. And, you know, they make mistakes, but most people are pretty accommodating and are not going to attack them for making a genuine mistake if they are willing to learn and willing to be open and to change. I don't feel like the conversations where people feel harassed are completely unfounded. There may be some, and I just don't see it, but the conversations I've seen are a lot more intentional, a lot more designed to provoke. And, you know, when you go out and provoke harassment, it's not necessarily, you know, I don't feel terrible for you, right? Support for this show comes from Sylvan Learning. As a parent, you want your child to have every opportunity, but giving them the tools they need to tackle every challenge, that takes a team. Now more than ever, educational support tailored exactly to what your child needs can make all the difference. That's why parents have trusted Sylvan Learning for 45 years as the ultimate teammate in their child's educational journey, instilling in them a love for learning and a passion for reaching the next level. And Sylvan's Insight Assessment can identify gaps in learning and areas that could be of concern for your child. It's a 360-degree view into your child's learning that you can't find anywhere else and helps ensure that your child didn't miss something in school that might put them at a disadvantage in the future. And right now, it's the best price of the year at $29. Go to sylvan29.com to learn more and get your child's assessment for only $29. That's S-Y-L-V-A-N-29.com. So the question I'm about to ask you is very big, but you have advised so many CEOs and so many companies that that maybe you'll have a better way to to narrow it and answer than I have in asking it. So one of the things that I felt a lot when I was building Vox, which is a company that I've built, although not one I run now, is I really knew how to change what we were focused on. Like I could say we were not looking at this metric now, we're looking at that metric, or I wanted more stories on X, or you know we're going to launch this product. Culture, which I understood to be probably the most important thing we were building, the tools with which to shape it were much more opaque to me. I mean, it was something that evolved in part organically, in part with us pushing. It's something that my leadership team talked about a lot. I mean, I'm proud of the culture we built. But even now, I always feel like I wish I understood better how to focus on it. I wish I understood better what the building blocks of building culture were in the ways I understand like what the blocks of building an editorial process are. So how do you build a culture? Or at least if you're running something, how do you think about how to build a culture? I think it starts with – I keep saying that. It starts with – The number of my comments that begin with one thing I – don't worry. <laughs> I think. Um, it starts with really – coming up with core values that you want your team to embrace and that are going to be the guiding principles that you build your company on and that you make decisions around and that, you know, hopefully everything is consistent with those values. And then on top of that, you have a code of conduct where you really are very explicit about what behavioral expectations were. We didn't have a good code of conduct at Reddit, so people didn't realize don't touch people and give them massages. Don't say 
you know, how big your penis is. Like, don't do that to people because it's not acceptable work behavior. And if you are pretty explicit about what to do and then you also create a process for bringing up these issues and you make it very clear to people, like, then you'll hear about things early. And then as a leader, you have to jump on it. You can't let your HR team quash it because, oh, if we get rid of this one person complaining, then we solve the problem. No, you have a problem. And it's probably more than this one person complaining. And you need to go and figure out what's going on there and fix it. And part of that is, you know, if it is your star engineer or your star reporter, making sure that they get penalized in some way because otherwise people assume that that's part of what makes them a star and they copy that behavior and it becomes part of your whole culture. What are the company cultures you most admire? Oh, that's a good question. Um, Recently, I've been really excited about Patreon. We've been working with them as part of our Startup Include uh, program at Project Include, and I feel like they've really come from a place of wanting to learn to moving into a place of leadership. And as I mentioned earlier, they have taken this goal of getting to 50% women and non-binary employees and 50% people of color in their employee base by 2020. And I haven't seen any company who has been as ambitious or as public about their ambitions. Where are they now? I think they're better than the t- tech industry in general, but um, you know they're still they got a long way to go. I don't know the numbers off the top of my head. So I have two questions about this. So one, I can imagine a lot of people hearing this and saying, "Wait, you're telling me this company now has quotas where even if the white men coming in the door are the best candidates, they absolutely cannot or will not hire them." Well, what's your answer to somebody who hears in that a zero sum mechanism? that they are going to be the losers in. If Patreon is a leader and all groups should adopt this across society, you know, or many or many companies should, you know, that that's a place where we're not we're no longer talking about diverse teams or, or the best teams. We're actually saying, okay, there's a zero sumness here and we're going to change the dials in a way that they're going to be losers from. Oh, it's such a rigid way to think of it as zero sum. So it's hard for me to address. Um you know, I think the idea is that we're trying to get the best people in the door and we're trying to get the best people who have not been given a fair shot, the opportunity to contribute at the most, you know, at their full capacity. And that has not happened in tech unless you really believe that, you know, white people and white men in particular are better at everything, right? If you look at the numbers across the board, there are, you know, there's so little representation. You'd really have to believe that people were inferior in order to support the current demographics of the tech workforce, especially on all the different levels and in the specific functions. So for me, it's like, you know, they're really trying to experiment and they're thinking about, hey, in, you know, 20 years, this is what the population is going to look like and even more so. So I want to get a head start and make sure that I'm able to reach as many people as I can and to recruit from as wide a candidate pool as possible. And I want to make sure that, you know, people have the opportunity to do their best and to work on teams where they're not the only and are able to, you know, get a chance to succeed and to contribute. So I have, I have two thoughts on this. So one, staying on the, the devil's advocate position here for a minute, I feel like there are two ways people discuss this. One is that we're trying to get the best people in the door. We're trying to open up the recruiting pool. We're trying, right? We want to make sure we see all the best candidates. And then at the end, we'll choose the best person. You know, We're just trying to be even truer to what we've always been saying we're doing. Then there's another version, which is 
no, we've decided actually that to be the best company we can be, we need to be more diverse than we are. And the best people, sort of irrespective of some of the things we've traditionally selected for or like the fact that the job is just called engineer, like we've decided the best people are like if it's not um, a woman or a person of color in this position, given what our company demographics are, they're not going to be hired. My sense is that to get to the diversity numbers that a lot of companies want to get to or you know, arguably need to get to, that more of that has to happen than has. But that is also something people are very uncomfortable defending. It makes many people very defensive. You have this great quote, great, I mean by telling, from Sequoia Capital in your book, I believe it was, who said when they had zero women in their whole senior venture capital team, the one thing we're not going to do is lower our standards, which clearly that was not the issue. But there's a real tension between the rhetoric of inclusion and the rhetoric of quotas, like we're just going to get people who you know fit these demographic categories because we've decided that's what we need to do. And it sounds to me a little bit like Patreon is moving in that direction. But I even hear here, like there's a discomfort with that conversation. It is super uncomfortable. It's saying, hey, all of these systems and structures that favored one group of people, we're going to take down. And we're going to say, hey, we're not going to focus on you know, your SAT score, that doesn't prove your contributions. We're not going to focus on the school you went to. We're not going to focus on um, all of these things that, you know, we all jump through the hoops to to accomplish because we thought they were going to be our ticket to a good job and the ability to contribute to the best of our capabilities. And all of a sudden, the whole playing field has changed. And it's uncomfortable because it favored, you know, certain groups of people. So obviously, like, you know, if you've spent your whole life going through these hoops and all of a sudden, like the end goal has gone someplace different and everything that you've done is no longer being rewarded the way you expected it to, it's uncomfortable. I think I totally understand that. I think the part that is missing is like there's a whole set of people who have not been able to even get to the hoops. And how do you address the fact that these hoops actually don't work, right? You're not creating better product. You're not creating better companies because now we've got all these products with where like harassment is built into it, where you know you can discriminate against whole classes of people because none of the people who are in leadership positions and able to impact the product were experiencing harassment or had friends who were unable to use the product or had, you know, all these behaviors that happened to huge segments of the population. So there's, you know, the argument like, yes, I want to make it more fair or yes, I want to push really hard and maybe I'm going to like be a little bit unfair in that process. But it's also like, I want to get to the best product. I want to reach as many customers as possible and I want the best opportunity for my company to succeed. I understand why people are worried like, oh, like a great, you know, white male candidate isn't going to get hired. That is so not the case in Silicon Valley. Like those people will continue to get hired. There are opportunities like the jobs are at the companies that people want to go to, like they're hiring, right? There's a huge opportunity and it continues in tech. So there's not a lack of jobs. And the part that I think the smart companies are realizing is we're based on our people, our ability to hire great people. And if we don't start looking at people from different groups, we're not going to be able to hire fast enough. And something I want to pull out of there is it is so much easier to do this amidst growth yeah. than scarcity. I mean, when you're in an industry or a company that is growing, you can do so much more than when you're in a company where all you're working through is attrition. So I just want to put that as a little pin there. 
you said something else that I wanted to pick up on because I was talking through some of my concerns about radicalization earlier. You said that if you believe that the way these companies are currently composed is natural, then you have to almost take with that some real beliefs about inferiority in folks who are under who are this underrepresented in, in these in these companies. Something I'm tracking, and I'm going to try to use a less loaded term than inferiority, but is a huge attraction in the kind of Silicon Valley world to arguments about genetic, biological, et cetera, difference that all seem to end with the idea, and that is why white men are doing great. <laughs> um, I just had a long debate recently with Sam Harris about race and IQ um, and the sort of appeal that arguments around that and, and pretty arguments that end up with the argument, and that is why we don't need affirmative action, seem to hold in this sort of intellectual dark web community that, that has been emergent. But you can go back to the Jamie Damore me memo, you know, Google, which is uh, – I. I think reasonably one would not say that is an argument about inferiority, but it is definitely an argument about difference meant to justify the inequality one sees at Google. And, you know, traditionally, a lot of these arguments about how different groups are different are used to justify what we see around us. And it seems to me that people are responding to the pressure of this conversation, many, many folks anyway, by embracing arguments that say it is natural. The reason things are like this is because women are interested in people, not objects, and because, well, there's a different race and IQ distribution that just means you're going to have more white men and more Asians who are able to be coders. And, you know, you you run the numbers on that and everything's actually just fine out here in Silicon Valley or out here in society more broadly. It's certainly not only a tech industry thing. And that's something that that I find unnerving. It's hard because I've seen so many opportunities given to people who really did not deserve them and who have totally blown them. And they just get opportunity after opportunity mm -hmm. after opportunity. It's really hard to imagine that that is actually a fair system, right? Yeah, this idea that uh, it's hard because it's a widespread belief, I think. We don't really talk about it, but it is more widespread than people want to believe. And it's hard to counter. Like, the biology is there, but people don't want to believe it. You can interpret it how you want it to in many ways because it's, there is not, like, one definitive source. And, you know, you saw people were able to get, you know, footnotes in these different uh, reports. But it's just such a hard way to look at the world where you want to categorize people and dismiss whole groups of people based on an assumption about their biology and about their capabilities. And you lose the whole richness of being able to work with different people, being able to hear different experiences, being able to come up with better products, being able to connect. And it's because you just cannot see past your biases. You know, it's sad to me, but you know, I, I'm not sure what to do to change it. One of the things that I always think about in these conversations is the way that Outcomes get interpreted, that outcomes that reflect different kinds of, of inequality get interpreted as outcomes that justify different kinds of, of inequality. And I'll, I'll give one example that always seems very, very profound to me. You can think of computer programming in a lot of different ways. You can think of it as about people or you can think of it as, as about numbers. There are different ways to teach it and we've seen that different ways of teaching it show different results for men and for women. 
for a very long time, it was a very female-dominated profession, particularly in its early years. It's become a very male-dominated one. It's not surprising that people would create cultures and modes of learning and modes of talking about it that would reflect things that, that men might be more interested in. And even if you believe in pretty profound differences in what um, the two these two genders are attracted to, depending on how you frame and how you train and, ha and how you construct an industry, it could appeal to both sides differently. But that because it has now been constructed in one way, well, it's just more attractive to men. And you can see it on the other side too. Teaching was a very, very, very female-dominated industry for all kinds of cultural reasons about how we talked about it and how we spoke about it and how we thought about it, particularly um, K-12 uh, education. And now it is much less so than it used to be. And, and there are, I think, good reasons for that. I like the way you put it, that it, it, it lets go of a lot of richness. But to me, it also – it's a very strange way to interpret data. There, there feels to me to be a real desire to believe data that reflects the human experience speaks clearly towards one conclusion, that it's like physics somehow, when human data is always very contingent. It's contingent on the decisions we make and the cultures we grow up in. I mean, we are creatures who are very adaptive. And I don't know this is a, on the list of things that feel strange to me in the culture right now uh, of how we talk about this. This feels very high up there. There's some belief that you can somehow short circuit everything we've done by like pointing to an appendix table. And I'm a guy who likes his appendix tables. But if you are somebody who loves data analysis, like that is not the way you do it. Like it is the beginning of how you interpret the data. The appendix table is not the end of it. Um, and I worry people are beginning to see it as the end of it um, for motivated reasons. People, I think, want simplicity. They want their lives to be simple. They want things not to change if they're doing well. And it causes them, I think, to hold on to like whatever they can, like this idea of confirmation bias, this idea of, you know, I'm, I have certain ideas and I'm going to hold on to whatever rationales I can. We are seeing, and I'm curious to see how they think about it, but pockets of data that go the diff a different way. You look at what Harvey Mudd College has been able to do to um, balance out gender in their computer science department for the students. And you look at, like, I think it's India. When I went to visit maybe 10 years ago, all of the top students were women in computer science. And it's a very exam-based and, you know, you have specific numbers. So it's very quantitative. So there are data out there that show different results, but people cling to the data that reinforces their beliefs. And that belief is really hard baked and hardwired into people. And that's, yeah, it's going to be hard to, it's just going to be hard to change. One of the things, you wrote a, an interesting piece recently that argued that a lot of people who are now participating in these conversations or want to participate in these conversations or leaders of companies who want to try to do better they're afraid to do so because a conversation is exceptionally or feels exceptionally punitive. That if they try publicly and they fail, that will have been much worse than never having tried at all. That if they try to speak publicly and try to be an ally or just try to ask a question to learn, but they get the question wrong or they show themselves to have retrograde views, that the consequences of that will be disastrous. I'm curious, you know, how what you say to people who are looking at this and want to try to be a good actor in it or just want to try to learn about it and are in a position where doing so carries some potentially reputational risk, how they should comport themselves given that 
You know, it does seem to me there are a lot of people out there who are not looking to deal with folks generously on these issues. I think about it in terms of slow change, right? If you are going out there and you expect to have this immediate reaction, it's probably going to be like not a good feeling for you. Like this change is slow. It takes people a long time to change their cultures, to change their behavior, impacting biases is really hard. So you really have to, as a leader, think about like, I'm going to give this message seven times. When I was at Reddit, we were moving into mobile. And one of the people who advised me was like, you're going to have to tell everybody seven times that they have to move to mobile because I was getting frustrated. I'm like, the world is mobile. Humans are mobile. What are they saying? Reddit is not mobile. So I think of that when I think about changing culture. Like, you, you know, you want to be productive. It is going to be this long game. It's a long process and you need to be committed to it. And when you've done it the seventh time, then people, you know, and maybe you use the wrong word or maybe you misgender somebody, people will look back and see that you've already tried this six times and it's not this one-time flash-in-the-pan PR effort. That is what's important, I think, to people who are looking at some of the missteps that companies have made. Like, it's because they're not genuine. They're not authentic. They're doing something to get a quick response. And sometimes it works and sometimes it doesn't. But this idea that, you know, these are going to be hard conversations. They're going to be uncomfortable. There are people who don't understand why change needs to happen. I think that's less so today. I do believe that people are seeing the biases that have gotten us to where we are and do want to change. And now they're really thinking hard about what are the things I can do to change it. Obviously, not everybody is there yet, but I'm seeing a lot more of it. Like the the direction is moving towards change. So people are easier to talk to now than they were a year ago and certainly easier than before 2015 when everybody assumed that we were working in a meritocratic um, environment. If you just want to learn more about all this, what are some books you recommend? What what have you read that has influenced you that you think should have a wider audience? Yeah, I'm, I'm in the middle of reading Ijomo... Oluo's book, um, So You Want to Talk About Race. And it's a it's a great um, book because she talks about her experiences in a, and she's a beautiful writer and ties it to all of these lessons that we need to learn about talking about race and about biases and about our, you know, how we think about the world if we've been raised with privilege and the way that people who don't have privilege experience the world and the biases that show up every day and how they impact people. And that it's a little bit of a hard book to read because it is, you know, it is so clear about all of the issues, but it's a great primer on issues around like what to say and what to do and how to think about things. And it shares her frameworks for thinking about different complicated issues and how do you have these hard conversations. Um, I read a book, a while ago, when actually I was going through the litigation called Beautiful Souls by E.L. Press. It's not a book that I think got a ton of attention, but this idea that you can change things by speaking up. And the people who spoke up were going against the grain, but they had these core values that really drove them to want to change bad things that were happening. And this idea that often the people who are speaking up and trying to change a company are the people who care the most about it because they want to make that effort to make it a better place. And that, you know, you, you hear like the terrible things that and experiences that people have and you realize, well, 
you know, if somebody says something negative to me on Twitter, it's not so bad. Maybe I should just speak up and try to say something. Um, and then the last book I thought was a very enjoyable read going through some difficult topics too. Trevor Noah's Born a Crime, talking about apartheid in Africa and his experiences with a black mother and a white father and the troubles he had because he did not fit into a clean category. And Ellen, if people want to follow your work and, and your thoughts, where can they find you? We have a Medium publication, uh, Project Include. I have a website that I have not updated in probably a year, Ellen K. Pow, but that has some links. And um, I did write a book, and then I enjoy doing What's podcasts. The book, called? Uh, the book is called Reset, My Fight for Inclusion and Lasting Change. I'm so bad at self-promoting. <laughs> thank you for well, we prompting will, I, me. <laughs> I will mention it also in the, in the intro. I've read the book. It's, right. it's great. Um, thank you, Ellen, so much for being on the podcast. Thank you so much for having me. This was a great conversation. Thank you to Ellen Powell for being here. Thank you to Jeremy Dalmas for producing this episode, to my producer, Jillian Weinberger. The Ezra Klein Show is a Vox Media podcast production, and we'll be back next week. <laughs>